Welcome to the Wild and Free Podcast, Episode 46. I'm Ainsley Arment, and this week we'll hear some exciting updates on the Wild and Free Farm Village. Elsie Uticello will share some eye-opening thoughts on raising boys, and Julie Bogart will talk about fashioning an education around our children's interests and not the other way around. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. Mud is caked under my fingernails from weeding the garden, and bees are buzzing in the flower beds. This can only mean one thing. Summer is officially here. The season synonymous with adventures, bucket lists, and new dreams. Some mamas homeschool through the summer, while others don't. But whether you're doing formal lessons or taking a break, you are still home educating. The beauty of this lifestyle is that it never quits, never tires, and never fails to offer meaningful experiences. The 19th century British banker John Lubbock wrote, Rest is not idleness, and to lie sometimes on the grass under trees on a summer's day, listening to the murmur of the water, or watching the clouds float across the sky, is by no means a waste of time. Who knows how many futures have been formed in the seemingly insignificant moments of childhood. Aside from the neurological benefits of idle mind-wandering, dreaming gives our children autonomy, adventure, and the chance to discover who they really are. When my kids were safe in my belly, I dreamed about what they would be like. I imagined them as chunky babies, adorable toddlers, soccer-playing adolescents, teens, and even adults. We can't help but to dream for our children when they are young. But as they have grown, my perspective has shifted to wanting not my dreams for them, but their own. I want my children to follow their dreams. Not the dreams I have for them or anyone else's for that matter. Their dreams, the ones that stir their souls and quicken their hearts. The ones that make them excited to learn and push them to do hard things. Follow your children's daydreams out the window, into the backyard and down the road. Seize opportunities when their imaginations are wandering and give them the freedom to chase them. The books and projects are patient. The question is, are you? Dreaming is life-giving, soul-feeling, and power-breathing. Dream to the chorus of morning songbirds. Dream in the quiet of a drive to the grocery store. Dream on a date with your spouse. Dream with your kids, and let them dream too. Summer offers us days that go on forever. Fireflies in mason jars and wedges of watermelon bigger than our faces. Summer beckons us to think bigger, make a bucket list, and rediscover childhood. Summer teaches us to dream again. Friends, the new Dream Bundle just came out this week, and it's packed with exclusive podcasts, articles, tutorials, and stories to help you make the most of this summer season. If you subscribe to our content bundles this week, you'll also get last month's Forage Bundle, as well as a magazine and a welcome kit in the mail. Plus, you'll get access to the Wild and Free Europe conference recordings when they become available this month. To sign up or get a free bundle, go to bewildandfree.org slash bundles.
All of us have our reasons for celebrating this wild and free lifestyle. But for my dear friend and fellow boy mama, Elsie Uticello, it's because her boys can be who they were made to be without someone trying to contort them into someone else. So what I do know about boys is that when I was teaching in um, the system, boys were treated like defective girls, right? Really that model of education is geared for kids that can you know, sit, sit still and do certain, you know, certain behaviors that usually girls tend to line up with a little more. I didn't when I was in school, but most girls tend to line up there, right? So the school likes to treat boys like defective girls and they're not doing anything right. They can't be wiggly. They can't, you know, do the things that most boys do. So I knew that when I wanted to homeschool, that I wanted to homeschool in a way that honored my boys the way they were meant to be and I knew that that was going to be very inconvenient for me in a lot of ways because it wouldn't look the way that maybe I would imagine things and I'm a writer so I'm a very imaginative person and I romanticize things to death all the time in my head so that's been a little tricky the big thing with boys is letting them preserving their wildness for as long as possible and letting that then translate into that their dreams and that's kind of where we are right now not all of my boys are super crazy and energetic we have a lot of different personalities in there um, I think what's common for all of them is that they like to find things out for themselves which lines up really beautifully with the whole Charlotte Mason what a child digs for becomes their own possession but just giving them the space to learn the way that they need to learn. In a lot of ways, homeschooling is is so generous to children in that if mothers <laughs> let that happen, it's just magic for kids to be able to find the things that they are passionate about. And all my boys, I think at their heart, what they really want is to be able to contribute to something and lead something really at their heart that's what all four of them want even though it manifests in different ways so it's just been finding ways to create room for that for them friends last week i shared the exciting news that there's a wild and free book coming out this fall it features so many of the stories examples and words of this community it's called the call of the wild and free and it comes out on september 3rd when we announced it last week, so many of you went to buy it that it quickly became the fastest selling book on Amazon and qualified as a bestseller. That goes to show just how meaningful this wild and free journey is to all of us as we seek to restore wonder in our children's education. The book is available for pre-order now, and if you go to our website, you can claim over $150 in pre-order perks by uploading your book receipt by September 2nd. To purchase your copy, visit bewildandfree.org book. Julie Bogart is a dear friend to the Wild and Free community. She is not only passionate about all the things we're passionate about, but she's not afraid to speak her mind, which happens to be what most of us are thinking. Julie is joining us at our Wild and Free conference in Franklin, Tennessee this September, but she recently sat down with Jennifer Pepito to talk about fashioning our children's education around their interests and gifts, and not the other way around. Let's listen in. I'm especially excited to talk to you today, Julie, about your book and about what really matters in homeschooling. Because I think that so often as homeschoolers, we start to think 
uh, am I doing enough? There's this constant nagging. Am I doing enough? And we have friends who do sports. So we think maybe we should be doing sports or friends who are doing science and engineering. So we think maybe we need to do that or art classes. And we can get so overwhelmed and frazzled and really not enjoy homeschooling and not enjoy our children because we end up too busy. And I'd love to have you you know, talk to us even about bringing back some enjoyment in our homeschools. Well, that's a fantastic setup. I think for many of us, we have a holdover from our own background in education, whether we were traditionally schooled in a public school or we went to a private school, or maybe even you were homeschooled, but it was back in the 1980s (laughs) where you were like textbook driven. And so what'll happen is right about the time that we start to bring in maybe a more non-traditional approach to learning. We trust a child's passion or we embrace a, a kinesthetic approach to a subject like grammar as opposed to traditional workbooks. Right as we start to do that, we have this sneaking sense that we are violating our responsibility to our kids to provide them with a college-ready education. And so it's like there are these two people at war inside of us, the one that wants to trust the wild and free natural education and the one that wants to not be accused of shirking her responsibility to bring her child through a proper high school level education in preparation for college. And so I think that's why sometimes the feeling of joy is almost a feeling of danger. You know, we want to feel joyful, but when we feel it, we're like, but are we actually doing education? Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. Because I think, you know, often at the end of the day, I'll reflect on what I really loved about the day or when I felt most myself or the best. And often that's when I'm reading out loud to my kids or painting with them. But sometimes that can feel like, oh, this stuff is just too easy. There must be something I'm missing. Yes. In fact, one of the humorous things I've discovered is that parents are suspicious of ease. (laughs) It's almost like they need to see their children suffering a little to prove that they're learning something. And I really do think that's a holdover from traditional education models, which are about duty, not about mastery. And so if we want to think about ease in education, One of the more helpful analogies, I think, is what you even started with, which is watching your child learn to play a sport. You know, they will feel the most skillful when what they're doing is easy. So when I was growing up, I was a gymnast and we learned how to do back handsprings and the splits and hip circles on the uneven parallel bars. And during those struggling hours when we're trying to learn a new trick, That's when there's the most pain, you know, you rip out the palms, your legs are sore, you feel like your back is sore. But once you get to ease, now you're getting near mastery. And that's when your coaches are the most excited because now they can deploy you to actually do that trick in competition. Unfortunately, in homeschool, we're almost the opposite. It's like when we see the mastery, We stop celebrating and we think to ourselves, oh, wait, it's too easy. She's not being challenged. She must not be learning anything. And yet it is in the mastery that the thing they've learned has become their own possession and it can be deployed for use in their actual lives. And that's the goal of education. Right. So tell me a little bit about how we apply this idea, because I think sometimes 
you know, we, we really just buy a curriculum and then we feel overwhelmed by it and feel like we're not doing enough and just keep trudging through in this way and not really think about, okay, what is it we actually need to do at each stage? Because, you know, I, I've talked to people a lot about the ages before 10, you know, and you can do less before age 10, you can be more interest driven, but then I think a lot of people start to get in those older elementary, junior high years and start to panic feeling like, oh, now we've got to really get serious about this. Yes, exactly. So in my book, The Brave Learner, I talk about what I call the 12 superpowers of learning. And those superpowers are divided into three categories, three groups. The first group is called the four forces of enchantment. So during the young years, we are very inclined to create an atmosphere of joy around learning. And we do that through using properties like surprise, you know, surprising our children with a baking soda volcano or watching borax turn into slime or reading for the very first time. The words on the page suddenly mean something to you. Even math can be fun. You're using manipulatives and counting change out of a purse These are the elements of surprise and mystery that draw our children in. But then as our kids get older and the world is less surprising and less mysterious, we get very duty-centered. And yet we can harness two other properties of enchantment to draw out our junior high and teenage students. I like to suggest that parents focus on risk and adventure. Now, (laughs) risk immediately sounds risky, (laughs) and I have to warn you, if you feel comfortable, it's probably not a risk, but here's how risk looks for that junior high or teenage student. When I had kids, I have five children, and when I had kids who were just in like seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I started asking them to imagine a life that would make them really happy, like What is one thing that if you could do it, if money and time were no object, what would you do? And one of my kids told me, oh, I would go to space camp. I would want to go to Huntsville, Alabama, and I'd want to be in space camp and see NASA and think about if I want to be an astronaut. Well, now that is a big goal. And it made looking at the big universe a lot more interesting than if I had just assigned a textbook for learning, correct? So we ended up having to support this goal. Uh, I tell the story about it in my book. But what I realized and what I discovered is that when given the opportunity to share a big goal, my job as the parent then was to come in behind and find a way to make it real. And then that helps to animate all the rest of what they're doing in their lives. Um, A second example that was in our family is I got very interested in reading Jane Austen during my 30s. It was the first time I had ever read any of her books. And my daughter, Johanna, watched all the Jane Austen movies with me. So she became interested in Jane Austen because of my interest in Jane Austen. And after we had watched, you know, Pride and Prejudice for the 30th time, she said to me one day, I want to do vintage dance. I would like to be a part of a vintage dance ball. And so... 
I found a local company that were adults that she could join. We went and took time out of our normal schedule for her to be able to participate every week. And by the end of the year, she was invited to this ball with her brother and was outfitted by one of the participants. And she had the full experience. But because of her interest in vintage dance, she read all the books. She watched all the movies. She ended up writing a little novella that was based on the story of Emma set in the Civil War. We happened to be studying the Civil War at the time. So what I want to suggest is this. You can get to all the school subjects you're interested in, all the ones you think they need to learn, if you start by harnessing the passion and interests they have and take a risk and invest in those not treat them like they're just the ice cream after the main course. But I love how revolutionary, this is revolutionary in a way, because I think that people often in high school, when, when their teens are most excited about life, have the most energy at this point could do something to even make money and help funnel or fuel their help, help essentially pay for their interest yes. is when we say, oh no, you got to do schoolwork for eight hours a day. A hundred percent. And the crazy thing is, because you are home educating, it doesn't take eight hours a day to do the quote-unquote requirements. Our students have so much more flexibility. I remember Johanna volunteered at the local elementary school three days a week while she was in high school. What high school student gets to do that? I didn't get to do that kind of work until I was in college. So there is no reason in the world that we should limit our kids right at the moment that they can start driving, earning money, and actually realizing some of these dreams. But it takes a willingness to risk with them and to be a resource to them while they're figuring out how to make it happen. This is actually very personally encouraging too, Julie, because my 16-year-old son right now is in Belfast, Northern Ireland, wow. uh, visiting his sister who's in law school. So he flew over with the 18-year-old or Love the 20-year-old. The 20-year-old went on to visit a friend in Oman and and he's been there kind of wandering around Belfast, which which gives me, you know, he he posts on Instagram like paramilitary posters that he's taken pictures of around the city. And I think, what did I do? What did I do? Why did I let him go over there by himself? And yet he's you know, I think that there's a lot that happens in our teens' hearts and minds and imagination when they have some time to think about, imagine what life they would want or be exposed to another culture or or explore some of their own interests. I am so impressed with you. Can I just say that? That is impressive that you let that happen. I know so many parents who shut down that kind of desire and say things like, you can do it in two years. If you do that to the teen when they're in the white heat of passion, they start learning how to turn off their imaginations. They start focusing on duty. They start seeing adulthood as drudgery, as weary responsibility. And then, you know, they get into adulthood and they hit 35 and they say, why am I working as an accountant? You know, if that wasn't really their dream, I mean, some people that would be a great life. But, you know, if you have this person who had this other vision and then they shut it down, then they will get to a point sometimes where they revoke the thing they planned for midway through adulthood. So yes, I think giving them that chance is it's just exquisite. I love it. Good job. Well, thank, well, thanks, Julie. That means a lot. And I think that one of the questions, though, that we have as parents is, you know, if we, you know, there's this constant inner battle, I think sometimes, okay, if we let our kids pursue their own interests, will they have the grit to actually do what they have to do? On the other hand, if we 
you know, if we push them to do the things we think they should do, well, they have the desire and energy and passion for the things they want to do. How do we as parents balance out the the duty with the joy or the or the things that should be done or must be done with even just the basic habits with the little kids, like getting them to make their beds and brush their teeth are, you know, to some degree essentials. And how can we do the basics or the dutiful stuff while still fostering imagination and giving them freedom to make up their own ideas or come up with their own plans? So that really is the crux of the parenting dilemma, isn't it? I mean, you've just put your finger on what every homeschooling parent wishes they had the magic elixir to cure. And my whole book is about the nexus of that very dilemma. So (laughs) I first just want to commend you for identifying it so specifically, because that is where everybody lives in anxiety. And the first thing I want to say to address it is this, it's not going to be a blueprint you can follow for all 10 of your children. Each child has a different ratio of need for autonomy, for their willingness to perform according to obligation or duty, for creativity. You know, I remember when we embarked on our first uh, experience of unschooling, my oldest child thrived and my next two children felt abandoned. Like they had a different need. They had a need to have a plan and to know what was coming next and how that matched their peer group. Whereas my oldest felt completely suffocated by that kind of understanding of education. So when we are looking at personality is so important. (laughs) So important. So what ends up happening is this. You might think if I require this child who doesn't want to do anything to do the thing, then I'm doing a service for that child. When in the truth of it, there are kids who are willing to quote, do the thing for the future because their personalities are bent that way. So if you have a child who is flat out refusing for anything, I always say, take good stock of what that means about this child. Can you harness faith that the design of this child standing in front of you exactly as they are is adequate to develop a life they will love when they're an adult? We tend to think, I got to tweak the design of the kid. And I'm saying we need to tweak the design of the education. So let me give you an example. My oldest child, Noah, when he was about 15 and a half, just decided he was done, like done with whatever I thought school was at that point. You know, we've tried quite a few different philosophies, but even just my basic idea that, you know, you need two lab sciences to get into college, two years of foreign language, you should take three years of English, you should study U.S. government. Like he was just like, nope, (laughs) not wanting to do those. And so I was faced with this big dilemma. Do I let him just live in my house, you know, eating my food, pursuing his passions, uh, working at Donato's Pizza, not getting a diploma of any kind, official diploma at a school or a homemade one by me? Or do I say no to be a member of this family? You're required to do these things. And it became crystal clear to me that it would be injurious to our relationship for me to require him to keep going. So, What I did, and this is what I recommend parents do, and I've worked with thousands of parents now, so I know this is a courageous act if you can muster it. You sit your child down and you let them know all the things you believe you know to be true about the world. So I said, well, here's what we know about college admissions. 
Here's what we know about general requirements. Here are how many years you have left until college starts. And here are your friends who are going to be going to college. Are you willing to risk all of that to follow your own thing and not worry about getting these requirements? And his answer to me was, yeah, I don't even know if I want to go to college. So I said, all right, we're going to take our hands off. You get to live here. I will feed you. (laughs) And let's see what you learn. So at that point, he turned his attention to reading his favorite books, learning Klingon, studying constructed languages, playing video games. Uh, He taught himself an enormous amount of math, but I only found that out when he was about 28. I didn't know he was studying math on his own. Uh, He was living and actually thriving. He was a member of a Shakespeare company at the time, acting in plays every single year of high school. And he thrived. And then one day, he hit age 18. One of his friends was going off to college and asked him to room with him. And he turned to me and he said, you know what? I'm ready to apply for college. And there was a part of me that guffawed. I was like, well, now (laughs) you're going to find out that I Uh was right and you were wrong. You know, like that secret, horrible person that you can be, that petty parent. Yes, yes. You'll find out what life is really like. Right. So we get online. We look at all the requirements. And, you know, his little transcript looked pretty shoddy in my view. And I said, you know what? I'm just not willing to pay the hundred bucks to apply to University of Cincinnati until I'm sure that you're even eligible. Because otherwise, let's send you to junior college, get some of those requirements, and then apply next year. So I called the admissions department, and the man who answered, I explained to him his non traditional education. And I say, he doesn't have two lab sciences. And he says, well, what field does he want to be in? I said, linguistics. He goes, oh, the linguistics department doesn't care about lab sciences. And my jaw hit the table. I thought, wait a minute, what? Have we all been duped? Is it really that discretionary? All these poor kids struggling through chemistry and it's actually not required, possibly? Then I said, well, here's what's worse. He wants to do linguistics, but he hasn't studied two years of language. He did one year of sign language, and he's done three years of Klingon and constructed languages. And the admissions guy burst out laughing and said this. He goes, the linguistics department is going to love that. Put Klingon on that transcript and (laughs) write me a book list of all the books he's been using for constructed languages and make sure his essay talks about his passion for language. So we hung up, we applied, and he got accepted into the department on the strength of his own application. And here's what he said to me as he was mailing it. He goes, boy, if it turns out they reject me because I didn't take chemistry, I'll be mad at myself. He didn't say he'd be mad at me. (laughs) And so I share that, hopefully encouraging a few people out there who are really tenaciously worried. Parents think they know more than they know even right? Like I was prophesying doom over Noah for four years. You need to do these things. And I turned out to be wrong. It's fabulous because, you know, if you look at history, one of my favorite literature books for my teens is Carry On Mr. Bowditch, where he's like, you know, apprenticed out at 12 or something. And then on his, in his spare time, which was minutes a day, studies Latin and all these languages and, and becomes a very skilled navigator and, and writes the standard for uh, navigation. And, you know, it's just so fascinating what people can accomplish when there's some 
initiative in it. And we only have like a minute left, but I just wanted to ask you what, okay, so you're, you're suggesting something very brave. In some ways you're suggesting that it's okay to let high school students take back some of the control for their own education. And it's okay throughout the school years to let your children's imagination and interest lead the way. But what about like basic life skills? Like, do you still make your kids and do you still recommend people make their kids brush their teeth or do dishes or learn how to contribute to the, you know, basic life skills so that at least if they, if they can't get into college, at least they know how to make their bed and do the dishes. Oh, for sure. But it's all through relationship, right? So rather than it being about you do this duty for some future date, it's really about what's happening in the home and between you now. So helping them enjoy teeth brushing rather than requiring it. Being in there, maybe you, you know, it, it becomes a part of your community dynamic. Thank you, Julie. Friends, I have one last thing to share with you today. As you might know, last year, the Wild and Free community came together to purchase a 177-acre retreat center in Headwaters, Virginia, to create the Wild and Free Farm Village. The property comes with a main lodge, a ropes course, a few rustic cabins, and acres of hiking trails. However, there is still one parcel of land that we need to make our vision complete, the Staff House. By purchasing the Staff House, we'll be able to accomplish four important things. First, increase the size of the farm village and preserve our privacy. Second, get access to thousands of acres in the adjoining national forest. Third, provide a place for guests to stay overnight, even before the lodge is ready. And fourth, house our own staff who will be taking care of the property. The seller has graciously offered us the opportunity to purchase the staff house at a discounted price under terms that we couldn't get anywhere else or at any other time. We've already raised $17,000 towards this project, and all we need is the remaining $33,000 to complete the vision for the land. The only catch is we have to raise the money by the end of July or else the staff house will be put back on the market for someone else to buy, and we could lose our chance for good. Next week, we're announcing an exciting campaign to raise the needed funds, and we've got some exclusive giving perks to make it worth your while. So stay tuned for all the details when we announce it next week. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but join us again next week for the Wild and Free Podcast. Podcast.